I can hear intense like angry grinding. That that is what she told me that. Yeah, that, that's what she said. Uh, no, I can't hear a thing, but I'll tell you if there's any audio interference. Can I drink my coffee while we're doing this, or will, is that going to cause? Yeah, only like, if terrible... you audibly slurp it. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's J- Japanese style. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's good. I like that. Powerful slurp. Hello, Hello Mark. Um, yeah. Good day, James. Um, well, here we are, and this this is. I'm designating this as a special Christmas episode, Christmas special, medical tea. Um, but I'm going to stop there because I'm concerned about my dog, who's already escaped from our, our yard once this morning, and I want to ascertain where he is before I go any further. So please, good be idea. Bear with me. Good idea. Captured. So, so I mean, I assume there's a gap of about five minutes there where I've been off wrangling the dog. So he's he was well. I found him is is his was fixedly staring at the gate, which has just been secured with a, like a chain, which he previously escaped out of. So he was just just out there eyeing it up. Um, yeah, he's been he's been escaping. Look, I'm burying the lead here. The context here is that he's no longer where he used to be. <laughs> that is the dog, and also you. Not merely, not merely in a, in a Heraclitian sense. That's right. Okay, so I have, I have big news, which is that I moved to Canberra with my family. And this is one reason, I mean, I, I really feel like we owe our, our five listeners an explanation about um, <laughs> what, what's, been, what's been going on, particularly like the one possible listener that I know in Sydney uh, who I haven't won have seen for ages, who may find out from this. And, and by extension, other people at the dog park might find out um, that, that I've just disappeared off the face of the earth. No one's seen me for about a month. Because a month ago, and this is really unrelated, but this is the other thing that's been going on with me and clearly hasn't prevented me from podcasting, but nonetheless, I broke the big toe on my left foot uh, just uh, like basically a month ago, um, which has like been really debilitating in, in a kind of unexpected way. And it still is. How did you, like, break, how did you break it, Mark? Well, um, we, we received an, a delivery uh, from Ikea uh, at eight o'clock on like a Saturday morning. And um, like, I don't know, like I was, I was barely awake and um, like you know it was hard like, trying to get trying to get everything inside the house really quickly and um the these bed slats my my daughter you know is just just old enough she's moving into her first bed and she's i just built this yesterday actually after having had it for a month uh so yeah we got got this bed for her and the bed slats came as like an independent item and um they were just resting against the wall and i was trying to move a box and the bed slats fell and um like literally the tip of the slat like slammed into the tip of my big toe uh, with all the leverage that it had at its disposal and um and cracked it so uh yeah like it's just like it's still i still basically can't can't bear weight on that toe which obviously is like kind of a problem for like walking and so on so i'm basically excruciating stuff yeah <laughs> it was it was pretty unpleasant but like you know it's not that the pain is not really the issue the issue is just like how irritating it is to not be able mm. to 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 get about and that's been that's been the case and i've I, and I've moved house and moved states. I mean, in reaction to breaking your toe, was this? Was this? Was yeah, the, I was a poor. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I led to be. Fuck this. Yeah, this is. Yeah, that's right, Zena. Sorry about that. That's my dog. Yeah, it clearly is your dog. James's dog, Zena, uh, is making herself hurt. She's doing German Shepherd business. Yeah, right. It's, it's guarding. Yeah. So, like, but but we decided complete. I mean, I mean, there is a, a relationship, but it's it's too it's too deep. In, in the law to go into, but you know, we, we decided to move, move to Canberra um, just like right after that. 
and um, I, we've had to move house with my, my wife is like seven months pregnant and um, which is obviously in itself quite debilitating. I had a broken toe uh, and we, we decided to move house like with like a couple of weeks notice, like there was no planning. It was just completely sudden out of nowhere. Um, and I probably, probably I won't go into the reasons why we made this decision. Well, maybe I will, because part of it, the really obvious element of it, um, which I guess I have to be slightly careful talking about is that there is like a fairly well publicized threat of me losing my job. Uh, and like, you know, I'm contractually obligated not to say anything that might reflect negatively on the organization uh, that I work for, but, um, nevertheless, there, there's, there, there was a, you know, a, a prospect that I might lose my job. And this is one reason we, we ended up deciding to move very, very quickly because, um, the, basically the living situation we had in Sydney was strongly dependent on my income and, um, uh, should that uh, go away, we didn't have a lot of wiggle room. So, is there any resolution to the job scenario yet? No, they kicked the can down the road to the new year. Um, they clearly decided they couldn't deal with it before Christmas. So that's mm. that's kind of annoying. But you know, whatever, basically. But I must say, I mean, and despite the circumstances, the the move to Canberra in the manner that you did was classic MGEK. It, it, it was just, I broke my toe, radio silence. We live in Canberra now. That that was that was from an outsider's perspective. That was really how it went. Really, uh, that was even from your perspective. That's how it went. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, even are, though you I mean, gave me pretty pretty regular updates, but it was just it was absolutely bonkers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in the best possible way. It's it's funny because it's funny because like uh, you know you probably are the, you know you probably would get the most regular updates of literally anyone. So like if that's how it seemed to you, like yeah, <laughs> but, imagine the people from the dog park. They must assume yeah. you're dead. Or you worked for the CIA. Two, there's two or three people dog park who like have my contact details. So like one of them eventually like messaged me and was like, "I haven't seen you in like weeks," and I, I told them what had happened. But um, yeah, it, it's weird because the the dog park it's it's my social scene. Yeah, the the life I had in Sydney had become completely dog based and also infant based. So like this is, I mean, I think the infant thing is more familiar to people. Like when you have a child, like you know your your world becomes oriented around the child your friends are your child's friends but yep. i also had a dog and the, the my friends with my dog's friend you know my dog if my dog got on with another dog i yep. would develop a relationship with the dog's owners and it was dependent oh, totally. right so like you know the yeah labradors english bulldogs things like that as i have a, have a staffy that that those and of course other staffy owners i'd have a relationship with them but um other people not so much yeah, when in the early days of Xena, we would just hone in on any Hungarian Vizsla owner because Hungarian Vizslas seemed to be the ones that matched with Xena the most because they're more well, they're psychotic. So that was a good that was a Vizslas good are, I, I won't I won't take that Vizslas are blessed dogs like they are. Amazing. Oh no, I agree, I, absolutely blessed. But they they are they're they're righteous in in they're extremely physical and love to wrestle. So that was yeah. That was I mean, Graham Graham gets on very well with young Vizslas. So there's, and there's, there's quite a lot of dogs like this that in their puppy stage, they'll be very good friends for Graham, like, you know, eight year old Staffordshire Bull Terrier. Um, but when they grow up, I've seen this now, we had, we had a Vizsla called Miles. That he was very good friends with as a puppy, but then once, once it hit two, it was all over. Yep. So you're in Canberra. Yeah. How do you find first, first impressions? I've never been full disclosure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very Victorian thing to say. Like Absolutely. I felt, like, I felt like literally no one from Sydney could possibly, you know, get to adulthood without having been obliged to go. Because like in S Sydney, I take it like I'm obviously not Australian, so I don't. But I take it that in Sydney, everyone is obligated to go to Canberra 
as a child. But in Cap Victoria, because everyone has to do like a school trip to Parliament or whatever, right? I think that's oh, true. Yeah, yep. all the Good kind point. of cultural institutions here, which is like one of the like it's you know, I I basically like a massive Canberra fan. Like I I really, which is one reason why I obviously agreed to do this because I I think Canberra's just fantastic. And one of the things like you know, it's it's the bush capital, as some of the certain vintage license plates read, ACT the the bush capital, and it's a big bush town big country town like it's the biggest you know it is the biggest inland settlement in australia whatever it is doing fifty thousand people or something so it's it's kind of got this country town feel uh and you are kind of in the bush and also the way it's laid out it's laid out you know in accordance with the you know principles of the garden city movement so there's there's like bushland interspersed with all the suburbs like you're never really very far i'm, I'm in, a, in a back block that backs onto bush so i'm like looking out of my window i mean actually it's a reserve but it's it's a paddock and then you know bush beyond and it, but it also has like all the Australia's national cultural institutions. So it has the National Library, the National Gallery, the National Parliament, um, all this stuff, and a lot of international stuff because of all the embassies. It has a lot of kind of international facilities at a level that like international schools, that kind of thing, at a level that like nowhere else in Australia has, or, or at least doesn't have to a superior level. So it's I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's good stuff. And how 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 are you going to deal with the cold come winter time? This is what I want to know because you are like a famous famous sook when it comes to the cold. Yeah, this is interesting. I often reflect on the fact that in in northern English dialects there there's there are specific words for this. I've told you this before. So because no. not I mean I'm from the south of England, you know where we we're, we're not not that hardy. In the north they have uh, at least two specific and they're, and they're regional. So they're not across the north. But in the northwest of England, there are at least two regional words I'm aware of, which specifically mean somebody who can't handle the cold. One being right. nesh and the other being marred. So uh, nesh is the one that, that comes to mind, northwest English term that means someone who can't handle the cold. So I, I am, and I am nesh. Like I can't, my, my, my nose starts running as soon as it dips below 20 degrees. Uh, despite the fact that I grew up in a country in which it's really over 20 degrees. So how are you going to deal with this? Have you thought about this, or is it you just going to you just going to you just going to going face to... it as it comes? I mean, I reckon I'll be all right. <laughs> oh. Classic Nesh response. Optimism. <laughs> I don't know if it really is, but like I, uh, I, I, I plan to. Um, I don't know, man. Like I'll just I'll like because it, it, it gets cold in Sydney. Like it doesn't get as cold, but it gets cold enough to like piss me off in Sydney. Like it's it's still a problem. Like I, I'll just I'll run a hater in the in the house and I'll rug up. And what do you do? That's like hard to, it's hard to disagree with you there. Well, you can either do that or you can move to Townsville. Like those are your options. Um, which I, and I, you know, when I was younger, I strongly, strongly um, wanted to do the latter option. But like, I was going to say the latter seems pretty, pretty, pretty okay. But you know, I just so, I'm, not, I'm not into it anymore. I'm not into the I'm not into the heat because I've got really over the heat now. Like I right. I've lived in Australia long enough. When I was here initially, it was just like even even for like that first fifteen years lived in Australia, I just couldn't get enough of the heat. Like it, no matter how hot it got, I'd be like, this is fantastic. So you're a man who can't handle the cold and now has had enough, had enough of the heat. Yeah, pretty much. I quite like, I quite like, yeah, like, I actually quite like the cold, notwithstanding that it, like, I'm basically allergic to it. Right, right. Okay. So what are you going to do when you have to go to work? Assuming you will go to work. My first response, you know, intuitively is to ask what your mum's going to do when she has to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> This is going well. <laughs> I well, you know, like look, 
hopefully my employers not listen to this. The bottom line is the next, my teach next semester is online. So like, I don't have to go anywhere. Um, but like, I'm just going to commute like after that and see how it goes because I, I've known academics live significantly further away from their place of employment than I am. Like it's, it's a sub three hour drive to, to the campuses I work on. Um, so I will just see how that is. I mean, it is quite, that's quite a hefty commute, but you know, you know how academic life works, James, listeners may not, but like, you know, in the course of an entire year, I may have to attend my workplace, you know, a hundred times. Yeah. That's, that's actually pretty unlikely to me. That seems like a lot to me. That's, that's way over the, like, that's, that's a worst case scenario. More likely, like 50 is more likely the ballpark. I can get yep. it down to. And having to do 50, I mean, admittedly, it's a six hour round trip, having to do that 50 times a year. It's like compared to the commuting that most people do, like pretty reasonable. Yeah, that's a good point. But it's also a very nice drive. Sydney to Canberra is a very, very nice drive. Up the Hume? Because that's the, that's the highway that goes, that's the highway that goes to Melbourne, right? So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's mostly on the Hume. Like, because yep. uh, the Hume doesn't actually go through Canberra. You have to get off the Hume to come to Canberra. Right. The, the Monero Highway, which runs like um, within spitting distance of my house you got to sit on that what's it like living on acreage so to speak well i'm not on acreage like i i i don't think it's not a huge block run actually i'm imagining you in this kind of pastoral scene this is what i'm imagining. Well, it is because it backs on like it, it feels very expansive because it backs onto like bush and also you come from newtown so which is the opposite it's yeah it's very it's obviously very different like because like, i've literally come from living in the by sydney standards the middle of the inner city um like it's, it's good, man. Like it, I mean, there's, there's some really obvious, one, one obvious difference is like the, the, I live on a cul-de-sac, which is basically like, it's, it's like living on Ramsey street. Yeah. It's just completely bizarre because I literally, I may have mentioned this before, but there's a whole bunch of things in neighbors that I literally, that I thought were completely fictitious. Cause I grew up watching neighbors, right? As every English person did. As every English person did. Yep. Basically there were aspects of neighbors that I thought were completely fictitious, which turned out to be completely real when I arrived in Australia. And yep. one of them is that you have these places where everyone knows each other. Like yep. I grew up in like, you know, <laughs> I grew up in like villages and small towns in England where, okay. Yeah. I knew my immediate neighbors on either side. And, and I knew, by which I mean, I knew who they were. Like, it's not like I had social, regular social contact with them. It's not, I mean, but like, that's it. Like that, that even in a, in a very small community, that's as much community as existed in like the 80s or 90s in England. But here, I mean, like Christmas Day, we had like a neighborhood Christmas party where everyone from the street, everyone from the street was there. Yeah, it's off chops. My dog keeps escaping and then he keeps being captured by local people who I already know. I've been living here for 10 days. <laughs> um, but the dog keeps being returned by different people who live around the neighborhood whom I've met. And then they're like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not in any way aggravated by the fact that your dog has just come into my house and, and like jumped all over my children. But on the contrary, I'm going to invite you around to uh, yeah. like have, have drinks with us or something. I had the same experience. I mean, to a lesser degree, but when I moved, obviously I don't live in the country, but I live kind of on the coast kind of area. Uh, I had assumed that there were multiple kind of, myths about Australians, Australia's outer suburbs that turn out to be hundred percent correct. They're absolutely exactly as they're depicted. It's extraordinary. Yeah. No, it's and then within, within a month, I think we moved, we moved two years ago within a month. So it was just near Christmas. Both our neighbors had brought around Christmas gifts. And of course we were caught flat footed because we hadn't yeah. thought to do this. So we had to rush out and buy corresponding gifts. It's outrageous. 
I mean, it's really nice. It's bizarre. But it's, also, <laughs> it's also like, I still can't quite get used to it, which I think is me being an asshole. It's just not, it's not, yeah, it's not how, <laughs> it's not reality as I understand it. No, that's right. Until you realize that maybe it is reality. That's, <laughs> that's right. But it's, it's like, I mean, I feel my, my understanding, my understanding is about my intuitions about what reality are is so deeply at odds with this. Like the, I mean, it, it, let's, let's get philosophical, but the I- empirical evidence I'm receiving is not going to penetrate the, the carapace of ideology by which I relate to the world. So like, I, I, I imagine that I could live here for 20 years and I will still regard it as a bizarre aberration every time it happens. Yep. So, you're, so you've disproven GE more is what you're telling me. Empiricism is, is finished. Empiricism is, is um, garbage. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, no, data for, no data for Mark. You're wearing Dungeon Punk's tea. I am. Can I see it? Isn't this, isn't this the one you got? Oh my god! There we are. We're wearing the Zatnis oh, t-shirt is... in different colours. That is grim. That is that is. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. Yeah, well, you you're implicit, you're complicit, implicitly complicit. Oh my god! It's okay. I'm going to bleep. I'm going to no. bleep the expletives. Don't worry. Yeah, that's good. But you're you're right though. In terms of, I don't think it would change my opinion either. And and insofar as I still think of it as strange that the suburbs work this way, are these the quiet Australians? I don't know. Is this is this is this who we're talking about? I mean, it makes me laugh immediately because I'm start start to think of the the, the flags that um, my landlord has in his garage, um, which, are, which are pretty on the nose. If these the quiet Australians, imagine how many on the nose flags there must be in garages all over the country. Well, that's right. That's that's right behind closed doors. I mean, right. interesting that you know, there's, there's this kind of minor controversy currently, which fulminating. I take it hasn't been dealt with, but about people flying Nazi flags in the suburbs, right? Including the suburb I used to live in, Newtown, in a, in a Sydney. There was someone who was caught because you would be because everyone can see into your backyard anyway. You live in Newtown. Someone had had a, a you know Harkenkoitz banner in the in the backyard in some. I can't I'm trying to remember. I think it was the. For some reason, I believe it was, the, it was like the Kriegsmarine, the um, naval naval ensign of the Nazis, but they had in the backyard. But anyway, um, why would you do that? I don't understand. Because you're a Nazi, but the most obvious I'm, reason. Um, but, but but I mean, you can be a Nazi without flying the flag. I just don't understand. I don't get it. Like it just seems to it seems to be. Why would you? I mean, it just seems like the death drives in 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 full swing there. Like, why would you cause that much trouble to yourself? I think being a Nazi is not readily abstractable from the optics of being a Nazi from the aesthetics. So I think if you're a Nazi, you're going to go in for something like maybe it doesn't have yeah, to be okay. a swastika. It could be a, you know, the, what's that called in English? Black sun, the Zollenkreuz, the, um, the Sonnendag. Is that what it is? Is that what it's called? But you know, the one, the, the, the one Pete Evans, the one Pete Evans shared. <laughs> that's it. It's a tell. Um, yeah, that's right. So yeah, but like that, you've got to have, but you've got to have some like, out there fascist like fascism in general like if you if you i don't think you can be a a fascist in your heart without showing it in some way maybe you can keep the flags in your garage like maybe 
you don't have to have them out on the street. But like, I think you've got to, the, the symbolization is necessary. But maybe it's like being a metalhead. Well, I mean, actually, I mean, having said this, in my back of my mind, when I was saying this, like maybe it's not just true. I mean, I feel, I feel like it's kind of peculiarly true of fascism because fascism, as as an ideology, has a particular relationship to the aesthetic. But hmm. I kind of feel like ide- this is probably true of ideology in general. Like, you know, whether it be, I mean, I think communism would be the obvious kind of opposite test case because. I mean, I feel like communism always has this problem, but it, in principle, doesn't require it to have all the stuff it does. So, like, you know, communism not only doesn't require, but really shouldn't involve, like, a cult of personality around a leader, for example. It's completely non-Marxist. In fact, I mean, as I've, as I've remarked in print, like, the very notion of Marxism is completely paradoxical because it implies the singular elevation of a particular individual as the source of your ideology, despite the fact the ideology is supposed to be universal. Like from, from a, from a Marxist standpoint, the personage of Marx would seem totally inessential to the development of Marxism because Marxism surely should just develop logically through historical forces. Yet it's called Marxism. Mm. I mean, there are other terms like historical dialectical materialism, but bottom line is it's called Marxism. And still, like Marxists still need to keep going back to what Marx said, despite the fact that from a Marxist st- standpoint, you know, anyone could have said that stuff, mm. theoretically. But I don't think that's true. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, so similarly, like, you know, Marxists love to get a hammer and sickle out. You know, they love to have the red mm. flag. And this, I feel like they can't, probably the same thing is true of Marxists. Like, you can't really be a quiet Marxist. Like, you, you're going you're gonna to give it away at some point. And why do you think that is? Is it, is it simply because you're making some aesthetic point, some aesthetic relation to the political? Some way of, like, some, some aesthetic notion of how we experience the political realm? Well, my first thought is that it's not the idea that you have the political beliefs and then they have an aesthetic manifestation, which is how I think we generally think about this, is, is false, right? In the sense, like, I think mm-hmm. the aesthetic manifestation is, like, co-primary with the belief. So, mm-hmm. and it may even be the other way around. Like, I always remember this awful conversation that I overheard with a young, young Trotskyist who was talking about whether or not he was going to get like a hammer and sickle tattoo. Right. Mm. And he was just really like, you know, it was really kind of agonizing about it. I take it that, that this, this idea of, of symbolizing his, his Marxism, it was, it was almost like the telos of what he was doing. Like it wasn't, I mean, it's an identity, right? Being a Marxist, being a Trotskyist, being a communist. And the signaling to other people about your, your ideology is a large part of the point of any ideology. Like, doesn't I'm not singling out communism, but I kind of do want to single out communism because in the case of communism or Marxism, it's completely paradoxical. Like, they really shouldn't be doing that. And the fact they are kind of gives the light of their belief system. And that's a, but that's a common narrative, isn't it? That those I was reading about Picasso the other day, and when he joined the Communist Party, I can't remember when, must have been maybe the thirties or forties. Um, but he, and I think this is a fairly common story, which is to say you you join the Communist Party and you finally feel as if you belong to something for the first time in your life. Um, and that's usually from you know people who are sort of sort of oriented towards the left, but in, probably atheist. And then they suddenly feel a 
sense of belonging which they've never felt before. I mean, I, this is, or am I am I generalizing here? But this is quite a common. I think. Well, I think this is absolutely right. There's there's a conversion experience. And Foucault talks about this somewhere. Yeah. That people on the left, you know, that left wing movements, you know, they're very similar to religious movements, and they perform a lot of the same function. Mm. The problem with it, to my mind, with this, to my mind, is it's hypocritical when they do it. Like, mm. as with the cult of personality, it's hypocritical for Marxism to be a spirituality because it mm. says that spirit, it's, it attacks religion and then it is one. You know, I mean, this is, is very much where I've come in my thinking in, in recent times, but like the only thing that does this in a non-hypocritical way is religion itself because religion actually says it is doing what it's doing. Like it doesn't... It's, it, it is a matter of faith by definition. Yeah, and it, it says, and it, it allows, like it ha- allows, oh, look, we need to have a community oriented around around a belief system and mm. it needs to perform the function of giving people a sense of meaning in their life. Mm-hmm. What's, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the Marxists going to say in reply though? I mean, someone like, I don't know, someone like Badiou, who, who, what's he, he's, I mean, he's, because he's going to say that something like what, something like communism is a kind of commitment to, at least, I mean, one amongst other things, but a sort of a commitment to love and also for various complicated mathematical reasons, he's an atheist because there is no, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there is sort of no ultimate set of sets. So there can't be one unifying thing. So there can be no God. L'un n'est pas. Mm, That's right. So what what are they going to say back to you? Because I mean, this, this is not, this is not a, a new critique of, Marxism or any other religious movement for that matter. So what's what's the response? I mean, look, you know, there's there's a, a catastrophic risk of the, the wrong people hearing this in the sense of like there's three people in the world who'll be be offended by what I might say about Badiou here, but they're they're people who you know are fortunately unlikely to listen to this podcast. You know, the the, the bottom line with Badiou is that Badiou's position, most people would regard it as basically uns- an unsustainable via media, I want to say, like mid- middle position between between religion and, and Marxism. Right, because mm. Badiou is not a Marxist, or you know, doesn't doesn't identify as such. And what he does really is is he, he has a kind of, I, I want to say spiritualized. I mean, that's obviously not quite how he thinks of it, but you know, a, a com- communism of the spirit, which sits sits somewhere in between the the pure religiosity of a, of a religion and the materialism of Marxism, because it's, it's anti-materialist. His his communism, mm. right? So he. Essentially, he's broken with Marxism in a, I, I would overtly say, Christian direction. Like, and you get this, like, when, when you read his book on St. Paul, which is, which I know you have, James, uh, and I think yep. at my instigation, <laughs> read it. Yeah, it's a fantastic book, actually. That was the first Badu book I've read. Yeah. Well, it, and it was, and certainly not, like, for me, the other way around, like, I've read, I've read a lot of, ba- I've read a lot of Badu, not, I mean, of course, again, there's, there's people who will be listening to this, maybe who, who have listened, read a lot more than me, but they're, they're in a very, very, uh, you know, small set of people who have, like, I've read really quite a lot of Badu, more than, he's probably in, the, you know, out of the pe- people I've read the most of, probably in the top five of, of reading their work. I've read a lot of Badu, mostly the political stuff, because that was what the real point of interest was. The Badu's differences with St. Paul are so uh, minuscule, right? But, but they come down to something very vital, which is the, the there's an event which he believes, Badiou believes, that Paul is adhering to, um, which may mean that Badiou is not a Christian. So he, he, he disagrees, and he disagrees about the event of Christ, basically. He says that there's an event here. But he does this in a way that I find very unsatisfactory, which is he claims that the event of Christ is the resurrection. I mean, with you know, good, 
it's a good basis for this based on what Paul says, you know, the resurrection, like you believe if the resurrection hasn't happened, then faith is in vain. Right. So, you know, he, he, he bases this in the, in the text of Romans um, and says, well, you know, I don't believe in that. Therefore, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a Christian. And the, 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 I think there's like a, there's a, there's a dual problem with this, which, which is that, um, firstly, there's, there's an inadequate reason. There's no reason. He doesn't give any reason for not believing in that event. And secondly, I don't think that's the event of Christ that it's necessary to believe in either um, from, from a Badusian perspective. So what is the event in, in, in your perspective? Well, my, I think I've probably said this to you before, but I, I, I'm, t- I'm tempted to say with Christ that the appropriate event would be the Sermon on the Mount, like, because that's a that, right. truth event where, where Christ lays out a, a kind of ideological agenda. So like a radical othering. Yeah, yeah. Which which Badu seems to be based on, on board with. Like Badu seems yep. to be on board with with the message of Christianity, but not with the metaphysical kind of idea that yep. I mean obviously and God. I mean look, so I mean that's it's a non it's, that's not a trivial problem that Badu believes for, for essentially for set theoretic reasons, for mathematical reasons, that um there is no possibility of a monotheistic deity. Yeah. Um which is I, I mean again, you know, I feel like you know, people may take umbrage at this, but I think bad bad use mathematical arguments have very little purchase for the the great majority of people. Like the the idea that set theory can't mathematize God doesn't, I think, constitute like a particularly good argument. Mm. I guess the counter argument would be it does for Bedu because maths is ontology, right? Is is it is being, and so that must, in his in his framework, that must co- also constitute God, or in this case, not God. But of course, if you actually do have a faith in God, if you do believe in God, then surely God would would sort of rise above that, or would not be constituted within that on that kind of ontology. Is that right? I have a particular problem here, which is like, by, by this point in the discussion, I mean, this has been, it's, I've kind of alluded to this up to this point, but at this point, like I can really, anything I say, I can hear Justin Clements, like, uh, or like I can anticipate like what, right. what Justin might say. I mean, not that I, you know, I, I would flatter myself to think that he would ever listen to this podcast. So let's assume he, he simply won't have the time or inclination to do so. But I, I feel like anything I can say will just walk into obvious objection from, a, from a, someone who really knows bad you back to front the way, way someone like Justin mm. does. But nonetheless, I'll walk into the trap. I mean, I, I think that one problem with Badu's stance on mathematics, which you know he's, he's willing to, to own up to, is the problem that mathematics or set theory is not kind of totally settled fact, right? So like, you know, in, in being an event, his kind of original magnum opus, he, he relies on Cantorian set theory, but then in his being a logic of worlds being an event too, the sequel book that he put out fifteen years ago or something, a bit bit less than that, he kind of glams onto because Cantorian set theory now is pretty old, like it's it's not really the cutting edge. So he glams onto um, newer theories in in mathematics, and because the mm-hmm. theories in mathematics will change, right? He has to update his ontology. Mm-hmm. Now that's a weird position to be in. So for starters. So although that on his account, mathematics gives us fundamental ontology, that means math, you know, ontology is just beholden to mathematics, which itself develops over time. So, yeah. 
so therefore like if mathematics tells you god doesn't exist now uh that that doesn't really seem like a particularly knocked down argument because mathematics itself is malleable but there's also there's also i think a bigger problem here which is just that the, the very claim that mathematics is ontology is mm. is, is axiomatic i think it's 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 a like mathematics itself right you just kind of it's it's a matter of pure faith which at that point just contests with the the faith one has in the existence of god like it's like well i can have faith in mathematics or i can have faith in god and i think that you know i think i don't think bad you is is um trying to conceal that fact like i think for bad you you know it does come back down to faith um which is a way in which he's profoundly similar to christianity although his faith is not in the same things that christian's faith is in so his you know bad you Badiou believes believes what he believes, and he be, he doesn't think you know. For, so from from the point of view of talking about St Paul, like well, he just doesn't believe in the same event. Yeah, that's just why he doesn't give reasons for it. Like it's not that um, there's like a rational argument. It's just that his fidelity is not there. Yeah, and th- that's the thing that I found most striking about the the Paul book is that I mean I've never been closer to becoming a Christian than reading that book, which I don't think was his in- was his intention. <laughs> but there is this kind of really weird bit where he says. The resurrection is this event, you know, Paul is the only one to see this, but the, res- the resurrection didn't happen, so we don't have to worry about it. And you think, well, okay, but th- this also just seems like an extra- extraordinary thing to say. I mean, just, to, I mean, it, I feel like there should have been a chapter devoted to, to this. I mean, it's like Badgie's not saying anything about it because Badgie's just saying kind of what everyone thinks now, you know? Yeah. It's difficult because Badu generally doesn't say what everyone thinks. So I take it everyone today generally believes in a, in a I mean, everyone, not me, but like, and, and not a pretty sizable chunk of people, actually, because when you get into like religious belief, a lot of people don't really adhere to this. But the general kind of light culture these days is this kind of scientific materialism that says oh, things obey like a series of scientific laws and so on. That's, yep. That determines reality. And consequently, the resurrection of Christ from the dead doesn't happen because that's that's against the law. Because it can't happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not, that's just not factual. That's not, and you know, there's, I mean, look, for, to, to be fair, like if we're going to be, if we're going to be empiricists, like there's not, but I think, you know, I just think empiricism is, as I said, like I think, you know, there's, there's no, because this, this, where's the evidence of empiricism? Empiricism is just, yep. just leads you down a, a, a eternal regress. And I know you've, you've gone quite a long way with empiricism in the past, James, but there's no evidence based. The argument for the reliability of evidence it's, it's again completely axiomatic and faith-based and i just don't think it's going to get you anywhere like so sure like we're not going to get like scientific evidence i mean there, there, of course there are like christians who will try and push that there is somehow an evidence-based argument for, for the resurrection but like i don't think you're going to get it but i don't think it yeah that's not that's not what it's about at all like I mean, you know, from my perspective, cards on the table. I'm still, I'm still basically a Kantian idealist. Like that's 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 really my position. Like it's, which is clearly cringe and blue pill. And biz- yeah, that's right, cringe and blue pill. That's right. But it, I, I still, I, to me, it just seems it seems right. Like it's, but the victory, the victory of empiricism, or I mean, more specifically, sort of the positivism of the early sort of the first half of the twentieth century, which has just permeated into kind of general culture now. The victory of those kinds of positivisms is the fact that we now discuss, and you see this in you know, the new atheism, all this kind of stuff. The victory of that is that we now talk about religion purely in terms of its explanatory function. That is to say how, you know, the reason why religion is false is because it cannot explain empirical phenomena, which is not the point. Like, you know, the idea that the absurdity of, for example, believing the world was created 
however many thousand years ago, I think, was it 6,000 years ago, 7,000 years ago, whatever it is, because, because there are fossils. And this is meant to just end Christ, which is just, um, I just it, it, again, it just seems like this is not what religion is for. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's a certain um, reliance by the new atheists on, on a kind of converse fundamentalism. So obviously there, there are, you yeah. know, there is this non-trivial kind of Christian fundamentalist movement that does take the bible literally and and therefore wants to say the world yeah. is the, and then we'll still argue, you know there, there's this argument back back and forth between the you know fedoras and the brainlets around these questions but yeah it's i mean it's it's um certainly seems to me to be missing the point that's the victory i think of the permeation of of empiricism even if we don't necessarily subscribe ourselves to that position i mean that's another thing christian fundamentalism isn't empiricist so i'll give it i'll give it its due <laughs> like mm-hmm. it because at least whatever they may be at least they may be maybe very literal minded people it's, it's very it's funny for me even to contemplate because ultimately the the reality of fundamentalism is it's literal they're literal like half the time but there's certainly you know there's no fundamentalist who can interpret everything in the bible literally like no. and that's if they did it would be nonsensical so you know i think yeah interpreting the bible literally is is a ridiculous ridiculous game to go down i mean i guess i mean i guess you can say the converse though which is if you if you interpret everything in the bible non-literally then you also end up <laughs> some kind of serious problem as well so uh, the balance is hard to strike but yeah they're not empiricists i don't think i meant that i think it's more the fact that when we talk about religion and whether or not it's true it's always along the term in, in the terms of whether or not it can explain certain physical phenomena mm. But no one, you know, for example, it's much less common now to talk to think about, for, for example, what, what Baju talks about, which is the kind of kind of um, ethical ideas of Christianity, which is, you know, for example, the radical forgiveness of Christ, these kinds of things, which is to me the most interesting. You know, Jesus as radical figure, um, Paul as this as the one who recognizes the resurrection as this fundamental moment, this new event, uh, which sort of others human life forever. That to me is the most interesting thing, rather than the stuff that Richard Dawkins is worried about. Well, the stuff that Richard Dawkins is worried about, which to me is just banal. No, that's totally what I mean. Of course, of course, Ian Dawkins is a scientist, somehow. Yep. I mean, I, Dawkins had this incredibly stupid tweet last night, like twenty-four hours ago, which uh, came to my attention on my Twitter feed. He's he's a quite extraordinarily stupid man. Yeah, it's it's actually it's yeah. But I do I, I I link this up. I mean, I'd link this up to his anti-Christianity because he's he's someone who's totally without humility. He has no intellectual humility, and yeah. that you know, of course, he'll despise despise Christianity. What was the tweet? Jamie, can you get this up for us? Yeah, <laughs> I actually RT'd this from the Metacritic Twitter account, so it's very easy for me to find. Um, with a comment. And uh, as usual, like, nobody touched it. His tweet is, in quote marks, existentialist child, logical positivist child, neoplatonist child, Marxist Keynesian monetarist child, close quotes. We don't assume child inherits parents' philosophy. So why label all caps, label isn't all caps, label, in quotes, Catholic child, in quotes, Muslim child, etc. Why are there segregated faith schools for, in quotes, Catholic children, etc.? And I, I just thought this was so monstrously stupid. Like, there's so many stupidities in this retreat. Anyway, I, I, my, my RT of this, my quote tweet of it um, said, this is what Oxford does to your mind. Many such cases, sad. <laughs> I mean, where's the lie? Yeah. 
Well, that's classic Oxbridge. Well, yeah, I think I think Oxford more than Cambridge, although I've had limited amounts to do with people from Cambridge. But I think you know I've encountered a lot of a lot of people from, and you know I'm sure there's there's many exceptions. There's people. There's look. There's there's very lovely and wonderful people I've known who've who've been to Oxford. Wonderful people. So I I don't believe that. So when I say this, is what Oxford does to your mind, I. I probably, in fact, now thinking about some of the people who may have read that tweet, probably should have used like this is what Oxford can do to your mind or something like that. But I've definitely, it's, it's something that you see a lot in like the mainly non-academic ruling class in England, like the kind of people who who write newspaper articles, um, particularly yep. columnists. And is that angle grinder coming through? Like it's really loud here. Yeah, news, and, and politicians, which is these, these are people who spent three years at Oxford doing whatever greats they reading reading like i mean probably more like these days modern literature they read like you know i don't know what virginia wolf uh, at oxford they read they spend out three at oxford and believe they know everything when their education is so thin like yeah. risably thin but it's it's that classic it's that classic english thing of taking ignorance as a first principles form of rigor that's it's, you see it. You see it all the time. Yeah, I think we're thinking about a mutual acquaintance when when you say that. I mean, certainly I am. Who also coincidentally uh, went to Oxford. Can't read your face here. I'm, I'm saying nothing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That, but the, I mean, look that tweet. Let's. I'm going to dissect it for the sake of it. But like, let I'll spell it out. Firstly, the reason people don't talk about neoplatonist children as a category of children. <laughs> there's no durable community around any of these these categories like it's just total nonsense i'm going to put it out there and say there are no there are no neoplatonist parents alive today i mean i'm going to say i'm I'm claiming i'm sure there are individuals in it but the bottom line is there's just no there's no possibility so he's 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 chosen a whole series of like intellectual movements i mean the the most logical did he say logical positivism as well yeah yeah, he says logical positivism. there are certainly no logical positivist parents like that that is that is that is bonkers it's well, yeah, because most of them are like dead movements. I mean, the the one and the Keynesian one is so ludicrous because Keynesianism is not so like some of these because existentialism like makes a little bit of sense because existentialism is kind of a totally total worldview. Like I can see how existent being an existentialist can be something like having a religion, but it, I mean it isn't really yeah. because it's really no. the absence of that. Like existentialism is is. I mean, although not formally nihilist, it's much too nihilist to be a, a positive worldview. Logical positivism, similarly. Neoplatonism, I mean, Neoplatonism is really like a broad family of beliefs that potentially would include several religious sort of things. So it's not- I was going to say, surely that includes a lot of Christianity. Yeah, so it, how is the Catholic child not a Neoplatonist child? Anyway, the one actually in that list that is kind of interesting is the Marxist child, because, um, you know, actually, that kind of is a thing. Like red diaper babies, like I have known people who were, you know, cradle marxists whose parents were both marxists who grew up in marxist organizations and okay it's true people didn't talk about them being a quote marxist child but they certainly went to the summer camps so you know do they have segregated faith schools for marxists not in the formal sense of having like schools because they wouldn't it would be against marxist ideology essentially to send all the marxist kids to special marxist schools but you certainly do have marxist educational you know organizations for children so that's kind of a bad example but i mean the, the reason that you you label children of religious religious denominations members that denomination is because the children are formally members like if you're a catholic child you are baptized into catholicism you know right after birth you are formally a member 
Like it's not, there's a, a membership structure and you're a member. So that's not, there's no, there's no, which you're not if you're an existentialist. Like that, it's powerfully dissimilar. The stupidity of this, which is to say, oh look, here is, this tweet is so fucking illogical. Like yeah. you, you legitimately have to be a moron to, to come up with this. And I'm sorry, I honestly think on the basis of this, this and everything else I know about Dawkins, like the the guys like just just a stratospheric Dunning Kruger case. Yeah, he's a twit to use the technical term. Yeah, but I mean, it's also we we could allow. I don't really feel like allowing this, but we could allow he's a good biologist. But one of the problem here is this guy's just totally out of his out of his area. And yeah. he's I mean, this just goes back to what you were talking about. Like people who, who want to apply like a model of empiricism from the physical sciences onto questions about existence and meaning of philosophy or something like that, which is just just a totally invalid importation of that model. I, I was thinking about this the other day because you see this, I was talking to some parents the other day who apparently it's a thing now, I don't know if you know this, it's a thing now where you debate at length about whether you're going to imbue your child with the mythology of Father Christmas or Santa Claus because the, the logic being that I don't want to lie to my child. So this, these parents were telling me that they have friends who have told their kids that no, Santa doesn't come to our house because they don't actually want to lie to their children, which to me is probably one of the most insane things I think about for two reasons. One, because like this was settled in the 1970s when Bruno Bettelheim wrote The Uses of Enchantment. You know, there are strong psychoanalytical reasons why kids need to be exposed to fairy tales. Like there is the key developmental reasons for this, but also telling stories about Father Christmas. It's not lies. It's not a deception. I have a lot of thoughts about this, which don't particularly, I don't have a particular view. I mean, unfortunately, like part of me wants to just agree with you and go like, oh, look, this is just, yeah, it's just stupid to be concerned about this. But actually I think, I think there's, I think there's a genuine problem here. And one reason I believe there's a genuine problem here is that contrary to, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I've read that Battleheim piece or not, but in any case, it doesn't immediately, I don't immediately recall the details, but it's dangerously based is what I'll say. <laughs> well, hoops among us. The, the problem with this is the historical enchantment enchantment is not supposed to work the way the father christmas myth works right i've i've been telling i mean like, this is the first christmas my daughter could understand that mm. father christmas was a thing and i i spent a lot of effort replicating what my parents did and convincing her that it was real uh, but, which yeah. really didn't require very much because actually at that age the difference in reality and and you know fiction is not i mean i think actually to be honest she just doesn't really buy it or see what the point is but anyway she's she's um she's playing along but look the, the here's the thing Here's the deal. Yeah. Whenever, whenever you say here's the thing, we know something either completely, it's, 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 there's no way to, there's no, there's any, it's binary. It's either very, very good or absolutely cooked. So let's hear it. Or both. New thing, just <laughs> the dialectic. Okay. So historically, people believed there are fairies at the bottom of the garden, but it wasn't just a mm. myth they told to children to enchant them. They believe no, no, no. these are genuine folk myths, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And the, the Father Christmas myth as it exists today, I think there's a genuine, unprecedented structure to this, which is the, the idea that no adult believes it, that all children are supposed to believe it. There's not particularly a clear 
you know, it's not entirely clear where the dividing line here is. But, but this, this idea of a conspiracy by all adults to convince children of a falsehood that they know is false. And that is totally new because historically what you had is, is in mythologies, folk, folklore, whatever, that were widely mm. believed and were, were told mm. earnestly to children. Mm. And the, the structure of the Father Christmas myth is weird because it invites this inevitable moment of discovery that it's false and that you've been tricked. And the idea that mm. you, you're not being tricked, I mean, I mean, this is essentially what I'm intending Soto Voce to do with our daughter, which is to can keep talking about it. But at the point, if she ever actually puts it on the line and goes, look, is this real? I'll have to say no. And there's a really significant, I mean, influence here, but there's a Christian discourse around this because, you know, Christians, I think, rightly are concerned about the fact that you tell your children that God exists, you tell the children that Father Christmas exists. You know, what does that do to their belief mm. in God when they discover that they were lied to about Father Christmas, who is a very godlike figure, like omniscient, yeah. you know, extraordinary, you know, power. And of course, organically linked to Christianity, like historically based in a saint related to Christmas and so on. That's very interesting. I think on the surface of it, I agree with you, but the problem is not that the children eventually become disenchanted. It's that the adults should believe in Father Christmas. Yeah, well, that, that's that, that's right. That's that's a hundred. Like we, that's that's, and also, I mean, Bruno Bettelheim's going to agree with you here because he says, you know, the the moment of disenchantment is vital, and so when you're reading your kids' fairy tales, and you know, especially scary ones, because he his point is that you need scary fairy tales because kids need to be sort of exposed to these kinds of these these traumas in safe ways. So when the kid says holy fuck, are the giants or the, is the wolf or whoever, you know, these kinds of archetypes of the fairy tale, are they going to come get me? And you say, no, they don't live. And he says the key here is you must never say they don't exist because then, then the spell is broken and it's, it's all fucked. But you have to say, no, they don't live here. They live very far away. They can't get you here. Except, you know, you need to sort of, you need to, you need to sort of hold, hold the story at a distance. So I think the solution to Father Christmas is to say, no, he just stops coming at a certain age. That he's real. No, I think that's. I think that's. I think that's right. And the I mean, the, the the other point. I feel like um, the point about the, the childhood trauma. I feel like this is this is taken care of for me by the fact that there really are brown snakes just beyond our fence. And I have to say, that's right. That they're like me. That's, that's that why you need the fairy tales because you need, you need you need to teach the children that the like the world is full of terrors. No, and traumas. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit unsure about this as a parent because my my daughter is so scared of so many things now. She's she's got this very fearful age where she's scared about about things yeah. that are really not scary. Uh, like so, I'm I'm a little bit unsure. Although I exactly how to approach this, but um, the, no, I think I think this is this is this is the the logical way out of this with Father Christmas, which is to say that he is actually real, and just to yeah. just take take the red pill on Father Christmas. <laughs> Take the claws pill. Yeah, the red and white pill, and well, that's that. That's that. But the, here's 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 the problem. Um, he doesn't exist, uh, and that is I don't know where we go with that. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, maybe 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 I'm an empiricist after all. Like, well, it's difficult. Yeah. But he's actually Father Chris is the classic fucking. You talk, you talk a big game, Kelly. But when it, when push comes to shove, but he. Is Father Christmas is 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 a, is a perfect counterexample of this because an empiricist would believe he does exist. Like the the empiric, I mean, okay, I mean, maybe not if you're a logical positivist and you demand standards of proof, which actually nothing can reach, and therefore you won't actually believe in anything. But 
like there, I mean, there's a meme going around recently about um, you know, conspiracy theories and, and and Father Christmas saying that, you know, like it's the, believing that Father Christmas doesn't exist is a massive conspiracy theory. It ticks all the boxes of a crazy conspiracy theory. Yeah, I said because it to you. yeah, okay. The the, men, the mental gymnastics required to not believe in Santa. No, because there's so much more evidence that he does exist than he does. Like it's it's so, it's Occam's <laughs> razor demands you just go yeah, sure he exists. Yes, there is a difficulty with this though, actually, which is is the difficulty of squaring it with a whole bunch of other things. Because like the you know the the basic story of Father Christmas, like delivering presents to all the children in the world one night, does contradict like basic physical laws. So, you know, salve veritate, you'd have to like either reject physics or Father Christmas. And I take it that most, most like cringe scientists out there like want to, want to have their, have their. Yeah. You know, he's, he's fucking magic, constants. man. Like it's, he doesn't have to worry about that shit. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I romanticize Father Christmas, but I don't know if you had this experience, Mark, but the years in which I can't remember when I stopped believing in, in Father Christmas, you know, I mean, obviously I've gone back, of course, but when I, when, when the initial, you know, realization that he may not be real. I'm not sure when that was, but the years in which I did believe in him were terrifying, like absolutely terrifying because you would go to bed with the full belief that a very big man with 12 reindeer was going to land on your house, come down the chimney and give you presents. And, you know, this was during a period when I had to get up to go to the bathroom quite a lot. So the great terror was that I would go to the bathroom and catch Father Christmas at it. I catch him in my house and this would, this would be sort of, you know, a terrible, a terrible event because he'd be furious that I was out and about. And so I would lay in bed like desperately needing to piss, just rigid with fear. So every, it was highly traumatic. Yeah. But I stand by it. I think it was an important part of my development. No, I had the same similar thing. The only time I had like really serious insomnia as a kid was Christmas Eve and absolutely, like, you know, consistently, like I would have, would be unable to sleep. Um, although it's yeah. more about excitement than fear. I don't think I was, I don't think I had that. It was both for me. That's, What's it, what do you think it's going to do to you? I mean, come on. He's like the nicest guy in the world. For me, he was always slightly, like, he was like slightly sterner in, in, in my family mythology. Like he was, he was happy, but he was also quite stern. Was it, and if you got caught out- Did you, did you, you ever fuck. get like a lump of coal? No, but it, that, there, there were threats. I had a grade three teacher who was quite righteous. And she told me that Santa Claus is an, like, is an American invention. It's actually St. Nicholas and he lives in Germany. Right, because she was of German extraction, one assumes. I don't even know if she was. I think she was just, I don't know. I don't know what the issue was. I think she was just fervently anti-American. But this, this was huge for me. But, I think that, but also, I think there's, there's something in her. It's something in it. I mean, something we didn't mention, which was, very, I think, would be very obvious to people listening to this discussion, is that we consistently use the English phrase Father Christmas to describe this individual, mm. which I, it was quite natural for me, but slightly surprising to hear from you. And I mean, there's relatedly a, a surprising thing that's happened in my house over this Christmas period or over Advent, which is that my wife has taken to referring to him always as Father Christmas. And I think it's partly has to do with the fact that my daughter is is avidly consuming British TV shows, which describe mm. him generally as Father Christmas. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Santa Claus phrase, which is, you know, this weird bastardized Dutch Americanism. So I, I'm kind of happy with that. But I mean, actually, to, to, to be really blunt, like one of my biggest concerns about raising a child in Australia is that instead of Father Christmas, they would, they would say, as my older child does, Santa. And that, that's too much for me. No, I agree. I mean, it was always Father Christmas at my house, despite being Australian. Right. And Santa was associated with the most cringe and sickening Australia, uh, American 
Is, is that like a Vic, is that a Vic thing? Because I've never encountered. Nah, nah. I think it's just I think it's just my lefty parents. Okay, that's, that's yeah, yeah, you're right. Good on. So I I I'm like physically I feel physically ill yeah. at same the 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 name the name of Santa. Good, good on you. Based in Anglo pilled. <laughs> okay, Merry Christmas, everyone. All right, Mark. Keep keep warm. Uh, the reason I didn't get you anything this year is. It's because I don't believe in Santa Claus His corporate image falls apart The blinded spending masses Who enslave the lower classes The obligatory gifts that serve to cleanse the year of guilt and shame Token gesture justifies the apathetic hypnotize Leaving them to be Kris Kringle slaves Ooh, fine, fine, I won't do it The season's obligation has not my participation